there's an interesting section in the Chaitanya Charitamrita where Krishnadas Kaviraj Goswami speaks to the point that one should use their intelligence, use it properly, and try to perceive the mercy of this Sankirtan movement. Just as uh, Bhakti Rasa was saying before Kirtan, the the goal and the means to the goal are one and the same in the practice of Krishna consciousness. Generally speaking, that's not the case in spiritual endeavor. The yogis, they work very hard to control the mind and they begin their control by controlling the body. So you'll see, if you look at, at traditional yoga, they, they are, they're sitting very strictly in, in particular asanas, uh, breathing very deeply. They're, a, they're bringing their whole body under control. They're sitting just perfectly and they're concentrating on finding peace and re total relaxation. Uh, so much so that they work in traditional yoga. You'll, you'll hear of this term, kundalini yoga. Those are supposed to be like the most, these are the real, the real hard yogi people, the hard workers. They're trying to raise this energy from the base of the spine all the way up through all these different energy centers in the body, all the way up to the, to the very crown of the head. It's very difficult practice. Can you imagine how much concentrated energy is required in order to, first of all, just rein in the senses so that they're, they're fixed on one object? That in and of itself is very difficult. I mean, everyone here is chanting Hare Krishna regularly. I know that fact, right? So, in your chanting, did you, do you ever notice that the mind is like, you're there, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, and the mind's off someplace else, all of a sudden. Oh, wait, could you come back? We're chanting Hare Krishna here. I want to hear Krishna's name. I want to concentrate on this. But the mind is floating away. You bring it back. So imagine these yogis that, that try very hard to control their body and what to speak of raising energy through different chakras in the body. It's, uh, in this age, extremely difficult. So when we hear of the kundalini yogis, there might be a couple handful on the planet, but this is not something that's it's very easily attained. It's like trying to control the ocean, it sounds like. Or well, what's, Christian, what's Arjuna say? Just when, give in. Uh, is that too hot? Huh? In the Bhagavad Gita. He told Krishna what? When Krishna was saying, reign in your senses, control your mind. It's more difficult to controlling the wind. Yeah, of the wind. Yeah. Very difficult process. Right. Very difficult. Not impossible. Yes, sir. And not to sidetrack you, but in times gone by, people weren't we saying at one point or just mentioning that the uh, people lived longer they had a lot more facility a lot more, yeah. they had a lot more facility 
which brings to, brings me to a story which I'll relate later. I just read in Bhagavatam to give you some perspective of that. I'll bring that up, but that's a good point. And what's the goal of that practice? The goal is not the self-control. The self-control is a means to an end. The end is realization, self-realization. And depending on the conception that the yogi may have, the school of thought, if he's, if he's truly a, a well-schooled yogi, he'll be following, in the ultimate issue, a system of yoga that, if properly followed, was penned by Patanjali. There's a certain system of yoga, and that, that system is bona fide. It's authorized. The point I'm trying to make is the the means to the end of that method of self-realization is not the same as the end. It's separate. Once you've attained self-realization through the practice of yoga, generally you don't go back and practice yoga. You're beyond yoga then. You've attained perfection. You've attained the mystic cities. You've attained that liberation whereby the senses will not again drag you down. Now we find in the Bhagavad that there's some discussion of the fact that unless you come to the true goal of yoga, as Krishna mentions at the end of the sixth chapter of Bhagavad Gita, and of all yogis, yogi nam api sarve sam, the supreme yogi is one who falls in love with me. That's the topmost yogi. If someone doesn't take their yoga to that conclusion, then there's a chance they may fall back down from liberation. So they've gone to all that work just to end up where they started from. What's being spoken of here in inner fulfillment is the fact that let us apply our intelligence to understanding the mercy of Shaitanya. The mercy of Shaitanya is the means and the end are in an are themselves the same. We chant Hare Krishna to chant Hare Krishna. We chant Hare Krishna to, to become purified so that we purely chant Hare Krishna. When we purely cry out to the Lord in love, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, that is the goal of our practice. Don't misunderstand this point. A misunderstanding would be the chanting that you're experiencing in the beginning is the same chanting that you will experience as you mature in your spiritual practice. No. It's not really the same. Every week we chant Sostika and just always pull yourself back and remember what are the different stages that are there in the Sikhsastika. The prayers of Sri Shaitanya. What are the stages? The stages gradually come to the point of what? Step by step. I went through a whole series, week after week. We went through the Sikhsastika prayers. What do we begin with? Glory to Sri Krishna Sankirtan, which cleanses the heart of all the dust accumulated for years together. And gradually, as the, as the heart is cleansed, 
we realize how dirty our heart is and we feel distressed or dive them. I'm chanting and nothing's, it's not working for me. What a worthless soul I am. And in that stage, we become humble. Then what can you do? All you can chant is in humility. Humility. How humble? Humble than a blade of grass, devoid of all sense of false prestige, ready to offer all respects to others. That's a different chanting than might be the proudful chanting of the beginner but well, it's the second verse. In the second verse, Sri Chaitanya Dev is crying out, I'm chanting and there's no love. It's just a mechanical process. I'm such an unfortunate person. So unfortunate I am. Then I feel some humility. And that humility is not a false humility. That's a true heartfelt humility. And as the chanting is presented in love and humbleness, then what happens? Actually, then the heart becomes somewhat cleansed. Nadanam najanam nasundarim kavitram bhajavadishapama mama janmani janmani Nadanam. All of a sudden, I have no desire for wealth. I have no desire for all the sensual pleasures of the world. I have no desire. Again, I, I lost all this desire. Wow, this chanting is working. So the chanting in the beginning and the chanting even by the third verse where he's becoming humble and he's showing what humility is and then he's showing what is the result of humbly approaching God in despair. Please, I'm, I'm like a... I'm lower than a grass. I'm, I'm, I, I, please, you have to save me here. Then, some cleansing. Not enough. I have no desire to accumulate wealth. I don't want any number of followers. Don't want beautiful women. I only want this chanting. Wow, I'm starting to feel. This is working. This is working. Next stage. So next stage, some ruchi, some taste is there. Some taste, why? Because I'm seeing that the holy name of Krishna is non-different from Krishna. Oh, son of Maharaj Nanda, Krishna, I'm your eternal servitor. I'm starting to realize Krishna is Krishna. Krishna is the son of Nanda Maharaj. Krishna, he has his own spiritual realm. That's what was being spoken of here. Sridhar Swami was speaking of that realm of Braj. I'm starting to see there is a place where God enjoys and expresses a spiritual emotion and love with his topmost servitors. Oh, son of Maharaj Nanda, this is something. I like this. I like the taste of this, Krishna. This is actually something to strive for. Ruchi, ruchi, a taste. Some taste is there. When we say that the means, the means and the end are the same, they are. From ruchi, there's some ashakti, some real recognition of the characteristics of God, what he's actually like, how loving he is how much compassion he has. 
how much compassion unimaginable to us that much compassion we got some taste of compassion some analogies given look at Lord Jesus Christ talk about compassion yeah they don't know what they're doing how much compassion is coming from that plane that let me suffer unlimitedly for their benefit. This inner fulfillment, this other plane of spiritual life, this is what Chaitanya Dev has given. And the practice and the goal of the practice are one and the same. In our impure state, we may not realize it, but it actually is. The pure devotees simply want to chant purely. In the beginning, our chanting is somewhat of a chat, shadow of real chanting. It's called Nama Bas. Bas. Bas means it's a shadow. But a shadow is still connected to the object, is it not? Mm-hmm. Still connected. At least that connection's there. As the chanting becomes purified, as one progresses step by step through the stages of devotional purification, as Sri Shaitanya's given them in the Siksastika prayers. And where do they end up? Tears are flowing from my eyes like torrents of rain. I'm feeling all vacant in the world in your absence. And there's no one but Krishna is my Lord. I don't, that's all there is for me is Krishna. So such an absorption is there and the process is still Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. Hari Rama, Hari Rama, Rama Rama, Hari Hari. Still the same practice that the Guru said in the beginning, you need to chant this Hari Krishna to purify your heart. Way back in the first verse. <laughs> Ending with, oh, I can't live without this holy name. I have to chant it all the time. It's on my tongue continually. I can't stop chanting this. So, Bhagavad Gita, getting to a point in the fourth chapter where Krishna is going to explain the intricacies of action and what is action, what's inaction. It's an interesting approach that, uh, that Krishna takes in presenting this to Arjuna. So, first he spoke about himself in text 14. Krishna is saying about his activities that there's no work on this plane that affects him. There's no work that implicates me. This is text 14 of the fourth chapter. I have no desire for the fruits of action. One who understands me thus is not bound by the reactions of work. So we spoke last week to to just being able to comprehend that God is different from us in that he does not become implicated within this material world. Is and of itself gives us a benediction of freedom from karma. But coming to that realization is a very difficult thing. And what's the prime example of that difficulty? That school of thought which is referred to as Maya Vadi. It's so ingrained in materialistic consciousness that 
my spiritual master is saying prayers to him. We say, one of his primary objectives in his preaching was means the western world. That he came to counteract this philosophy of Mayavad. What's Mayavad mean? Well, it means a lot of things. And we've touched upon a lot of the meanings. But primarily, in relationship to this verse, it's a very important point to be taken. Generally, there's a class of spiritualists who believe if there is any activity on this plane of existence, this material plane, it's material activity. Kind of makes sense. You can't argue with them that much. It mean, if you're doing something in this world, then that activity is, is basically falling within the influence of the laws of the world. If I throw a rock up in the, in the sky, it's going to come down. If not careful, it might hit me on the head. It's, in this world, there are certain laws. And naturally, the spiritualists, they go on in their pursuit of knowledge to the point of understanding that there are laws of karma, just as there are laws of physics. In laws of physics, for every action, there's an opposite and equal reaction. Pound that in your head when you walk into elementary school, you know, for every action, there's an opposite. This is a basic law of this world. There's no way around it. It's there. It's, it's written in stone. Right? For every action, there's an opposite reaction. And equal. It's equal. The energy is never lost. It's just transformed. So similarly, the spiritualists, they come to that understanding in relationship to the activities of the soul within the material world. For every action, there's a reaction. You kill a dog, sometime a dog will kill you. I mean, it's they look at karma. For every activity we have, there is a reaction. That's their whole conception of act, action. Now, Krishna's going to stop, speak a lot about action here in these next few verses. It's important that we understand these points. And the first point he says is, understand, I'm not affected. When I perform an action on this plane, I'm God. I'm not affected. I can come and kill. There's no reaction for me. I can come and save. There's no benefit for me. I can give everybody charity through the light of the sun and the moon and the stars and the water and the the seeds and the bodies and the forefathers and it all comes back to me and I can do all this for you but there's no reaction. What's in it for him? Yeah. Well, we'll find out what's in it for him. <laughs> That's what this whole affair is about. Sarva dharmam come. Surrender everything to me. Let's just love each other. But 
We're not to the 18th chapter yet, but we'll get there. The Mayavadis, this conception that anything that is performed on this plane of existence by anyone means that they are under the influence of the material energy. Because of this conception that any activity on the material plane must be material activity and therefore subject to the laws of action and reaction on the material plane, both physically and spiritually. Everybody following what I'm saying? Not, no confusion here. All the activities that we performed here with the action and reaction, the Supreme Lord is not subject to the laws of this world. The Mayavadis have a misconception wherein they think if God incarnates and manifests himself on the material plane of existence, he comes under the influence of his laws. No, sorry, he wrote the law, he made the law. He is the source of all the energies that effectuate the law. Parashya Saktir Vividaya All his various energies act and react on this plane. But being the source of the energies, he's not affected. A lot of analogies are given. When the governor walks into the prison, is he a prisoner? No. In fact, he can sign his signature and he can have anybody in the prison walk free. That's how powerful the governor is. He can sign the clemency slip and they can walk out with him. So similarly, it is important to understand that the Mayavadis have it wrong. What do they feel? When God comes within the material world, he falls under the influence of Maya the way we're under the influence of Maya. That's why they're called, that's one reason we have the word Mayavadi. Their conception is everybody falls under Maya in this world. So Krishna is speaking in this 14th verse to a very important understanding of the basics of spiritual life. God is not subject to the laws of his Maya. He owns Maya. He controls Maya. There is no work that implicates me. None of this do I have any reaction to anything I do? I can kill, I can save, I can give in charity, I can take away. Whatever I do here, there's no reaction for me. I have no desire for the fruits of action on this plane. Well, that's kind of easy to understand, isn't it? If you're, the sort, if you're a fruit tree, you don't need to worry about fruit. You're the source. Well, if God's the fruit tree for all the fruits of this material world, does he really want any of them? <laughs> he doesn't need like that. One who understands me thus is not bound by the reactions of work. What a benediction. But you have to truly understand it. It has to be a realization has to go beyond just book knowledge. We have to realize God's not affected. 
benediction is we become free of the affections of material existence. Having known this, ancient seekers of transcendence also performed action. Therefore, now you should also act as the ancients did. Triperari points out in his purport here to which ancients Krishna is pointing. He's pointing to the ancients that he brought up in the very first verse of the chapter. I explained this imperishable science of yoga to the Vivishwan. Vivishwan spoke it to Manu, and Manu in turn imparted it to Isvaku. So these ancients, as I explained this science to them, Arjuna, and then he got into explaining how the science sometimes gets lost because time. And also, Triparai points out a bit an important thing there, does he not? What's the influence of time? Hmm? Right. But who creates that? Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita, Time I am, destroyer of worlds. Hmm? No, Krishna says that. Yes. He does it through his agency of Shiva, but ultimately he's the source. It's interesting, even his influence interferes with his religious principles so that he can come again and reestablish them. <laughs> Do it all over again. It's his Leela. It's his Leela. What what's it for? It's for the benefit of his devotees. He doesn't need to come again, but he does. Why? So that he can remind us of him. And once we're reminded of him, then we become attracted because who's more attractive than Krishna? That's what the word Krishna means, all attractive. And God has unlimited names. All these names that the Lord has speaks to his various attributes. But that one word, Krishna, that specifically sweet nomenclature, Krishna, that speaks to the Lord's all attractive feature. Hmm? We all want to be attractive. We're all looking for something to be attracted to. Yes. <laughs> Even learned people are confused as to what constitutes action and what constitutes inaction. I will now explain action, understanding which you shall be freed from evil. I think we said we would chant this 17th verse. One must know the nature of prescribed action, the nature of prohibited action, and also the nature of inaction. The path of action is mysterious. One who perceives inaction in action and action in inaction is wise in human society. Such a person is spiritually situated while engaged in all types of work. A person who has removed desire and motivation from his undertakings and consumed his karmic reactions in the fire of knowledge is called a sage by the wise. Abandoning attachment to the fruits of action, always satisfied and independent, even while acting, such a person does nothing at all. 
having given up all sense of proprietorship, such a person of disciplined spiritual intelligence, who performs only bodily actions, incurs no evil. Content with that which comes of its own accord, transcending dualities, free from envy and steady in the face of success or failure, even though acting, such a, such a person is not bound by karmic reactions. A liberated soul established in knowledge, who is free from attachment and acts only in sacrifice, dissipates all his karma. Now there's an interesting point brought forth in the purport to the 19th verse. According to Madhusudana Saraswati, here desire, karma, means hankering for results, and motivation, sankalpa, indicates the sense of agentship, thinking oneself the doer. The word sarve, in this verse indicates that all actions, those prescribed in the Vedas or otherwise, including even prohibited actions, have no capacity to bind one whose actions are karma, sankalpa, varjita. Baladev Vidyabhushan glosses karma, sankalpa, varjita as activities directed to the self or personal objectives. Karma be atmodeshma bhavati. Both E and Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur agree with Sridhar Swami's comments, who glosses karma as fruits and sankalpa as the desire for fruits. So these two things, hankering for the result, karma, lust, lust. And Krishna earlier in Bhagavad Gita speaks to this lust, does he not? He says, what? It is lust and lust only, which is the all-devouring sinful enemy. That's the enemy. Lust. Kama. Me, me, me. I, me, mine. Not egoless. Ego. Ego, me. Everything's for me. Kama. Kama is that binding force that gives us karma that lustful propensity. And what's also a point? Motivation. What is the motivating factor of action? It may be lust, or it may be something else. The motivation is referred to as sankalpa. So these two words are very important when it comes to action. Kama what is the goal of the action? Any activity on the material plane that seeks to satisfy sens the senses, and even those activities that seek to turn off the senses, both action and reaction, action and inactivity. Because why? Krishna makes it very clear. The soul can't be inactive at any moment. Even the great yogis are sitting in trance. They're sitting in trance. They're doing something. They're reframing from karma, lust, or are they? 
What's the verse? One who sees action in action and in action in action is a true seer. Why? Because of motivation. Sankalpa. If I'm sitting and apparently inactive with the goal of comma enjoyment, then am I really inactive? No, I'm not inactive. If I'm a practicing yogi, then we have to question ourselves. If I am an inspiring spiritualist, what is my sankalpa? What is my motivation? Now we can look at the yogi and we can see he's doing nothing. But what's he meditating on? What is the goal? If his goal of rising, and we were talking about those highest levels of yogis who, who practice kundalini yogi, yoga to rise the through the various chakras. But at every stage of that rising of the, the primal energy of prana, pranayama, to rise that through the various chakras, every one of those stages results in what? City, perfection. And when you're fully perfect, you realize all those cities perfectly, and they're wonderful. You may want to enjoy them. Ah, now I can become smaller and the smallest, larger and the largest. I can, I can create my own planet. Sankalpa, what's the goal of my yoga practice? Now, there can be short-term goals and there can be long-term goals. Good guidance is necessary so that one may satisfy a short-term goal realizing that it is just that. It's a way station, but it's something that's necessary. So I'll tell you an interesting story from the Bhagavat, the third canto, in relationship to a, one of the greatest yogis. His name was Kardama Muni. He practiced that old school yoga of controlling the body. And he was at the stage after 10,000 years of practice, he became perfect in his yoga practice. But one of the motivations for his yoga practice was the fulfillment of his material duty. And his material duty is he was one of the progenitors. He was supposed to populate the world. He attained his perfection. He reached the perfection and he was such a great yogi that God appeared before him and, said, and congratulated him. Very nice job. <laughs> You've attained the goal. Now you've seen me. And of course, there's a whole dialogue in the Bhagavad of his prayers to Krishna and his appreciation. And then he openly expressed, my duty, I understand, is, is one of a progenitor, so I will need a woman. Can't do it on my own. So God told him, he said, very shortly, a very wonderful personality who's Swayambhuva Manu, the first Manu of this day of Brahma, Swayambhuva Manu, uh, will come and offer you his daughter. This was a princess. 
there's a whole dialogue there and a lot of interesting purport there where Bhaktivedanta Swami explains in his commentary on the Srimad Bhagavatam about the significance of the relationship between a man and the, a woman in the material world and how generally that this young Devahuti, she had learned of Kardama Muni's spiritual character and simply by hearing of him, she was attracted. She didn't see a picture. She just heard from Narada Muni what a great devotee of Krishna Kardama Muni was, what a great yogi he was. She was attracted and she expressed this desire to her father who immediately took her. Yes, here's Kardama Muni. He requested, Kardama Muni, please, will you take my daughter? And he said, yes, I will. She started to serve him. Well, Kardava Muni's a yogi living in a hut in the forest. She's coming from a, a palace where she has many maidservants taking care of her. But she immediately adopted the mentality of her new husband and started to live very simply and very austerely. And you can imagine what happened in time. Yogis don't eat very much. She lost all of her bodily luster became thin and frail. But she continued to serve him. In due course, Kardama Muni noticed her condition. He praised her for her dedication as a, as a wife. And she expressed her desire. I've been here serving you now. Are we going to have any kids? And then she looked at herself. And you can imagine she's become thin and you know, not eating nicely, didn't look very good. Her hair was all matted. She hadn't been washing her hair regularly. She didn't have all those facilities. So Kardama Muni, he said, yes, it's a good idea. We should have children. And she, he could immediately detect, because he was a great yogi, could detect the consciousness of his wife just by seeing her demeanor that she was concerned, well, how are we gonna have kids? How can you be attracted to me sexually? Look at me. He really wasn't one of those yogis that likes to flaunt his spiritual success by showing his mystic powers. But then this, this instant, he said, yes, it's okay. I must, you know, it's time for us to get into our material life here we need to have these kids. He said, why don't you go ahead and take a bath here in this nice lake? And his cottage was by a, a very spiritual lake. And the lake was named such because it was the tears of the Supreme Lord had, had formed this lake. So she went and she dived into the lake to, to bathe. And immediately a thousand maidservants came forward and gave her an elixir, which immediately gave her back all her bodily luster and strength. She was no longer frail. They washed her hair. They oiled her bodies. They dressed her in the most gorgeous of garments and jewelry. She came forward from the lake, and she looks there, and hovering in the sky is a celestial mansion. And this whole arrangement had been brought forth from the mystic powers of Kardama Muni. He'd arranged all this. 
And he invited her, please get on this new mansion and let's go. So now she's restored. She's gorgeous. And the mansion was specifically constructed by his mystic opulences. And he didn't, he was in wonder of it. Bhagavat mentions he was in wonder of the opulence of his mystic potency. And this mansion was full of all these gorgeous rooms, all just suitable to stimulate sexual excitement so that they could engage in sex and have good offspring. He boarded this airplane with her and they went to all the hot spots in the universe, all the celestial places. All the celestial gardens where all the higher demigods enjoy. And they enjoyed. For years, they enjoyed. The culmination of their enjoyment was she brought forth nine daughters. And these nine daughters were given to the nine principal sages and this was in the first at the very beginning of the universe and from those daughters so much of the population of the universe came from those unions and they were all perfect perfectly arranged according to the character and demeanor of the daughter they were perfectly matched to the sage that had the same character and characteristics so Kardama's there, okay, I've done my duty now. I need to go back to my meditation. So he was ready to leave his wife and retire from household life. Household life means you come together for some time, you live in a house together, you have some good offspring, and at the end of life you go back to retirement and back to spiritual meditation. She's like, well, wait a minute. I've received so much from you, but who's going to give me all the spiritual knowledge I need? I need some fulfillment spiritually. At that time, it was revealed to her that she had one more child coming. And that child was actually a manifestation of the Supreme Lord, called Lord Kapila. So Lord Kapila came as the son of Devahuti. He gave the world the Sankhya philosophy, the Sankhya philosophy of perfect discrimination as to what is matter and what is spirit. And we touch upon, we'll touch upon later in Bhagavad Gita, this Sankhya philosophy. Basically, it's, it's a simple analysis of the material creation, an analysis of, of what brings the false ego that Krishna's talking about here in action and how it influences us and how that false ego results in the generation of a material body. And the generation of the body comes in the gross elements, earth, water, fire, air, ether. That's five. And then you have ten senses, five, for acquiring knowledge, hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting touching, five working senses, arms, legs, tongue, genital, anus, so the arms and legs, the tongue, 
So the working sense, so we, now we have the five gross elements, the five working senses, the five knowledge acquiring senses, and the five objects of the senses. What are those? Sound, form, sound, form we can see, smell, taste, and feeling, the air. Kapila Dave gave this perfect philosophy of understanding these elements and how they're brought about by material desire, comma, by the living entity. They come forth in order to fulfill those enjoyments of exploitation, of comma. I'll finish with going back to the simple point. When we look at action, it's important to understand what Krishna is talking about. Seeing inaction and action and action and inaction. And that on the material plane, everything is based upon what is the motivation of the action. And if the motivation is karma, lust, then the action is material. And if the motivation is not enjoyment, not karma, not lust, then there is no material action. And just as the Supreme Lord is not affected by anything He does on this plane, similarly, the living entity will not be affected by any activity on the material plane that has a spiritual motivation. And that'll come up came out as we had progress in this chapter. Any questions? Thank you very much. Thank you. Hare Krishna. No, I just find it Still there? Hey, you're so welcome. Sorry, we missed you tonight.